Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode. I am so excited about this episode and it was filmed, I want to say a month or so ago. So it's been actually quite some time and I've been really anxious and excited to post this episode. I am so delighted to be joined by Huma, who you'll get to learn a little bit about in just a few seconds. This episode means a lot to me because as you know, mental health is really important to me. And so to have someone who is not only from the profession, but also someone who is a Muslim woman was really important to me. And so I'm really proud of this episode and I hope you enjoy it. I know that an hour and 18 minutes is a really long time to listen to an episode, but I highly, highly encourage that as you're listening just to this introduction, that you split this into as many different parts as you can. Listen to it over a week, a month, like I don't care, but I think get through the full episode because from beginning till end, there's just really good content. I just hope that you really enjoy this episode and find some benefit for you or someone that you know. Enjoy. Assalamualaikum. Alaikum. Hi. Nice to meet you. Sorry about the confusion. I just <laughs> jumped. I realized in the middle of my session, I'm like, I said three o'clock. I'm like, I didn't say two. And you're probably thinking, are we even a little confused? But I was like, you know, I think that I think it's the time difference because it messes me up all the time when I talk to people. So I completely understand. I was trying to, I was going to do it in your time and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on at 11.05. And I was like, no, oh, <laughs> and I'll be okay. But I'm like, why did I say three? But I'm happy that you seem to. Yeah. And honestly, even if you needed to like push it back, I kind of kept my schedule flexible because I'm like, you never know stuff happens. So I'm just blessed that I was able to do that today because I I'm working, but like I usually like schedule these around my lunchtime or I have very flexible hours. So I make it work, but thank you so much for doing this, for making yourself available. Um, I can say that I've never had so much response and like had so many people interested about this upcoming episode and I obviously I think the conversation just hit home for a lot of people when talking about it so I have all my questions um, that I want to go through inshallah we'll just get started bismillah but I um I kind of wanted just to give you an opportunity at the very beginning to talk a little bit about yourself introduce yourself because um I was gonna do an intro like I usually ask for bios and do an intro but I think it'd be really good just to hear it straight from you and talk a little bit about you know, how you got into this field, how long you've been doing it, just anything that you would like to share about yourself. Um, so my name is Huma Saidi. I've been in the field of psychology for um, about 20 years now, actually. I am a registered psychotherapist, uh, which means I have a master's degree in this. And I've been practicing for about, I think, 16 years, actually, um, the act of psychotherapy, but I've been working in the field of psychology for about 20 years. Uh, my focus in terms of therapy that I do is um, trauma. So I primarily see uh, clients that present with trauma related issues, as well as anxiety. Uh, For me, this is something that I really find a lot of um, need for. Um, And it's been something I've been doing for again, most of my career is focusing really on trauma and anxiety. Um, I currently work at um, in Canada, one of the, the largest mental health hospitals, CAMH. 
I work there as well as I have my own private practice called Cedar Way Therapy, where we have a large team of therapists. And what we try to do is to have therapists from a range of cultural diverse backgrounds as I think a lot of people can relate, um, is that there's not a lot of therapists out there or they're not as easy to find often that come from variety of backgrounds, speak different languages, can get the cultural and the spiritual context that a lot, particularly Muslims want, um, have part of their therapy experience. Yeah, that's interesting because someone actually asked a little, hmm. a little bit about that. So I'll, I'll get to that, but I do agree because I, when I was looking for a therapist a few years ago, when I started, my first therapist that I ever went to was like an uh, like older white woman. And she was really sweet, but there were so many points where I felt like I was spending a lot of time trying to educate her or like help her understand things about my culture, my religion. So what I found works best for me, because I don't have a lot of like Muslim therapists around me, is I try to find someone who's just faith-based because I think that they're at least able to understand the importance of religion uh, in someone's like spiritual healing or a uh, healing. So, I mean, that's like worked for me, but I mean, it's amazing that you guys are able to provide uh, a diverse range of ser- uh, ther- therapy and services for people um, for that. So m- the first question I wanted to ask just to kind of open up everything and, and um, set the, I guess, tone, or I, I think this would be a good question to start off with because it helps in the conversation is what is considered trauma or something that's traumatic? Because I think we use that word a little loosely sometimes, you know, in like a very sarcastic manner. Um, But what is considered uh, a trauma or a traumatic experience? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of said it right there. It's, it's, It's a very subjective term that I think most people loosely use when it comes to practical everyday life. So I think I hear that a lot in conversations. I think more and more actually as the years go by. Um, but I will say something that is traumatic to me might not be traumatic to you. So there is some subjectiveness when it comes to the term. There is a formal you know, diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and they actually um, do define it as a traumatic event as being something you've actually directly experienced or witnessed actual or threatened death, serious injury, or um, a sexual, I guess, violation. Um, It could also be people who have repeatedly seen something through their jobs. So for example, police officers, paramedics, um, those are things that are officially considered to be traumatic. Uh, But what I learned very early in my career, actually through one of my first supervisors was, is that if someone says that it's traumatic for them, um, that needs to be explored, that this should not be based on my opinion. So I remember one of the first cases um, this presented itself for me was a gentleman had slipped and fallen in the parking lot of his work. There was ice, he slipped and he fell. My initial assumption was, you know what, I'm not going to ask him if it was traumatic. You know, these things happen. I'm going to focus on his pain and his low mood. Thankfully, I did ask him. And what I did discover that this was traumatic for him because he was unable to move. No one was coming to assist him for almost an hour, leading him to actually think he was going to suffer a serious harm. Uh, So he did actually develop PTSD symptoms as a result that he needed treatment for. Um, So I think to me, in a nutshell, it's, it's a subjective term, but I am a big believer in is if you feel like this incident that's happened to you, whatever it might be, is traumatic to you, that it's worth exploring and uh, it might actually need, you might need more help around it. So that kind of leads to my next question, which is, do people 
cope or experience the same traumas in different ways because I mean I think you've seen for example even within families you know there's a loss and you see some people take it really really harshly and some people at least you know from an outsider's perspective it looks like some people are dealing with it a little bit easier um same thing with other types of like uh, abuses or anything really that's traumatic it's it's something that I don't think everyone is going to deal with it the same way and Mm -hmm. so is there anything or any reason behind why people can deal with things in in different ways and like the level of trauma that it could give them yeah I mean I, I think my first thing I would say is that not everyone who's had a trauma goes on to develop PTSD. So I think a lot of times people assume if you've had trauma, you know, that goes hand in hand with PTSD. I find that, you know, when I assess people before I start with treatment for them, I always let them know, you know what, so people can actually get, have depression as a result of a trauma, anxiety, or they can even find growth, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about in a bit. So it's not automatic that you will even have uh, trauma symptoms after a trauma. I think in terms of what you said is I mean, do we all kind of, can we react differently um, to the same event? So, I mean, similar to um, other things is no two people are the same, meaning we come in with our own um, upbringing, our own childhood, genetics, social context, basically a lot of things that can impact how we um, interpret a trauma. And there are risk factors that can increase the likelihood people actually might have PTSD. So for example, um, if it's two individuals, they have the same, you know, serious car accident that they're in. Maybe one person is more likely to have PTSD than the other because they've had other previous traumas in their life, Mm. or they have a history of abuse, a family history of trauma, uh, ongoing stress in life, these types of things that can actually reduce your ability to cope. So if you're already struggling with poverty, um, social isolation, you don't have a supportive family unit, you are more likely to, to develop PTSD as a result of something traumatic happening than the other next person who may not have those same stressors in their life. Does sex play a part in that? I've heard like men, like suicide rates are higher for men, for example. Does that play a factor? I, I mean, from my, the way that I think of it, there's like so many underlying reasons as to why it, it can be different. But if you can speak a little bit to what you know about that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, even when it comes to suicide, yes, men are, I mean, statistically, men are more likely to complete suicide, but they're not more likely to attempt. And, you know, what the research kind of shows, it's it's more likely based on um, the way people, the way that men um, attempt to suicide. When it comes to uh, trauma or PTSD, um, in terms of the differences, it does seem like there is a significant difference in that females or women are more likely to meet criteria for PTSD after traumatic event. Um, and why this is, it could be a, a variety of reasons. One reason that studies have shown is that women are more likely to experience sexual assaults in childhood sexual abuse. Um, and those are more likely to lead to PTSD. Um, and I think Many of the women who are listening right now can probably agree that a sexual assault can really impact you in a deeply emotional way. Um, And that's, I mean, to me, it makes sense that it's more likely that you might have PTSD as a result of sexual trauma. They also present a bit differently. So women are more likely than men to actually be diagnosed with PTSD. But even after both men and women have a diagnosis of PTSD, men uh, report feeling having more behavioral issues as a result of PTSD, drug 
substance use issues, they may have more irritability, anger, violent outbursts, where women are more likely to kind of report anxiety or depression related symptoms to PTSD. I would say, I think that makes sense based on how the social contexts that we're raised in, in terms of how men are supposed to respond to things and how women are. I'm not saying necessarily it's a biological thing, it's likely also social construct of how it's socially appropriate for a man to express it more in an outburst type of way, where for women it is more internally expressed. The good news is that treatment um, in, seems to work equally well for men and women. So um, that to me is a positive. Um, and I do think that it's something to keep in mind in that you can look, have treatment um, be looked at a bit differently if you're being if you're treating a woman than a man because it depends on personalizing it for that client to make sure that it's addressing the things that are coming up for them. So you talk a little bit about the treatment. Now obviously in order to receive treatment you have to you know approach um, a therapist or actually you know seek the help. And some of the questions that came in were from people who were saying like how do I build the courage to go talk to a therapist? How do I need how do I know if I need therapy? Um, you know, I feel like therapy won't help that they've done it, but it's not comfortable. So how does someone, I guess, initiate or start that journey? And then what do you say to people who say, you know, I just not, I've, I haven't had the right experience or I feel uncomfortable. It's just not for me. I mean, I actually think the hardest step is actually reaching out. I mean, I'm not going to say therapy is easy, but I do think the hardest step is that first attempt at trying to get help. I will say that step one is go ask other people if you're comfortable asking people that you know if they have any recommendations for a therapist. Because actually, it is really important that that fit or that connection you have with a therapist is one of the biggest predictors of how well you'll do in therapy. So if you feel that click, it's more likely to help you. So finding that person that there's a click with can be hard. Um, and can be discouraging. I recommend starting with, hey, you know, friend, do you know anyone you would recommend or, you know, asking around? If you're not comfortable with that, I would say you can start with, honestly, a quick Google search with putting in the things that are important to you. So for example, if a Muslim therapist is important to you, put that in. Muslim therapist, New York, put that in, see what comes up. The next step I would say is it's important that you are entitled to and you should be able to ask for a free phone call with that therapist. Most therapists will offer a 15 minute, 20 minute phone call for you to get a sense of them. I actually almost think of this as a rule for myself because I do know that that fit is so important that I want to be able to speak to a potential client beforehand to make sure I'm a good fit for them, to be honest, that I have the skills to work with them and that they have a sense of who I am. I always tell clients, I, I think I am a good therapist, but I might not be the best therapist for you. And that's okay. Um, so I, I usually no one tells me to my, you know, my face or on the phone that I'm not a good fit, but I'm, I don't take it personally because I think it matters. Every therapist has their own style and it might take you two, three, four attempts to find someone. And I know that's discouraging, but I always say to clients is it's not really the field of therapy that's the problem. It's finding that fit and that connection 
So I know it's daunting, but starting with having these free phone consultations, I think is a good place where you can ask them any questions you have about how it works, what you're worried about, what your concerns are, and you can have them with multiple therapists. There's nothing that prevents you from doing that. I think that's such a, an important um, thing to point out and to discuss because I think, you know, I, I obviously got some questions from people that are very specific, I think, to experiences that they had. So I don't know how helpful, you know, me asking you those questions might be because I think without a lot of context and obviously knowing and working with people, it's probably really difficult to just give answers, but you can generally talk about things. Um, so I think this is one of those uh you know, discussions that's really going to help people because at the end of the day, if you are someone who's dealing with trauma or have like any type of mental health issues, you should really go and seek out help. Um, I know in my experience, I had a therapist tell me the same thing. She was like, look, if you don't feel comfortable with me, like I won't take it personal. Like this is for you and your benefit and you need to make sure that you find someone who works well. And I've been through a few and I've definitely had some experiences where I didn't feel comfortable and experiences where I have. I always tell people, you know, just from my own experience that it's like, um, you know, it's like finding a friend or finding a partner. It's like you kind of have to get to know and like search until you find the right person. And sometimes even when you do, it takes uh, a bit to get comfortable, right? So, you know, in the beginning, it's kind of a stranger and you want to tell them about all your past traumas and like all the things you've experienced in life. And it's not as easy, but you do build that relationship over time. Um, I know accessibility is that's a whole nother topic, especially here in the US. I don't know how it is in Canada, but I think accessibility, unfortunately, is a barrier for a lot of people. Um, so I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was really um, great what you you talked about when it was about like finding the comfortability. Do you think that, you know, pe people were asking in, in some of the uh, kind of common themes was about stigma in our communities within you know, Muslim communities, Arab communities, communities of color, how do we address those stigmas? Or if you have any experience specifically for men, because I think that's where a lot of that question was coming from is like men talking about their just feeling uncomfortable, I guess, saying that they would, you know, seek help or like look for therapy. No, I actually do think that there's a lot more work to be done when it comes to stigma, I think across the board when it comes to the North American population, mm -hmm. particularly when you look at um, marginalized communities, you know, um, individuals of color, there is, I think, another layer of stigma that comes. I do think that there has been progress over time. I'm not sure what you've been noticing, but I don't know if you feel that people are more open to you even talking about your therapy journey. I feel like more people are likely to say, yeah, you know, I have an appointment with my therapist or... This that's why I, I do it. And I think that's why it's important. We encourage it because it, it becomes normal then. Exactly. And that was my point is that if we all hide and stay quiet as much as we're like, yeah, we're against the stigma. We, education is so key. I'm a big believer in the more you talk about something, the less it becomes scary and unknown. I still remember when I started in the field, I didn't know anybody else. I didn't know other uh, therapists of color, let alone Muslim women that visibly wear hijab. Now I have colleagues, which to me is exciting, where when I started 20 years ago, I didn't know anybody else. But that to me is a testament to how things are shifting, the fact that there are so many uh, people of color that are going into the field because there is a demand and there is a need. Um, so I do think that 
particularly in the younger generations. I, I think that our parents' generation, it's shifting much slower, uh, but I think it's because it's being talked about. We all know someone who's struggling uh, with mental health issues. If it's not ourselves, we know someone. Unfortunately, the rates of suicide are quite high. So we also, I think as a community know that the stakes are high if we don't do something about this. Um, so I do think it is, is being able to speak out. I love the fact, at least in my local community, that there are a lot more uh, mosques and community centers that are more open to having mental health related talks when it comes to um, the spiritual aspects as well. It's not just pray it away. It's fine, there's something wrong with your faith. I don't hear that narrative on the pulpit as much anymore, where I think you would have five, 10 years ago. I think it's slow, but I do think that there's some progress happening. And I think our role individually is, is to continue to speak up about it, talk about it, normalize it. Um, I do think that we got more ways to go, but I think we're on the right path. I think so. I mean, I, like I said, I'm slowly seeing a shift. I myself also took time for me to feel more comfortable talking about it, but um, I don't know much about your, your, your background, but did you personally face any uh, issues with your journey to becoming uh, a therapist or a psychotherapist as in like, were you supported with through family members and people in your life to do that? Because I also think that sometimes just the idea of like wanting to go into the field can be a little bit taboo because it's like, well, why do you want to, you know, work in that? And like people sometimes use really derogatory terms, at least in Arabic when talking about, you know, um, being a professional, uh, in mental health space. So did you have any issues with that when you were pursuing this career? I mean, I think initially, I don't know if it was as much overt as it was maybe a bit more confusion as to you want to do what? Like, you don't want to be a doctor? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I can I can help you with the entrance, you know, fees and, you know, all these type of like, is that not the path that you should be taking? You know, or, you know, you could probably get in. I'm like, but that's not what I want to do. This is my interest and my passion. So I think it was not necessarily uh, derogatory things that were said to me. It was more, I don't understand the field that you're choosing. And also, I think a lot of times, I think sometimes even now, as soon as people find out what I do, I think sometimes there's a bit of a guard, a wall that goes up is, are you analyzing me? What are mm -hmm. you doing? you know, that kind of thing. So I do feel like uh, back then, you know, 20 years ago, it was a bit more of, a, I'm not sure why, what you're doing and what does that look like practically? Because I don't think anyone in my circle at that time and my family and my friends that I'm aware of, I'm pretty sure is accurate is they, they weren't seeing a therapist voluntarily, right? So I don't think they knew what it looked like practically. Like, mm -hmm. is it medication-based? What is it that you're doing? I think there was a lot of confusion around what a therapist does and how they can help and how it's not just for extreme uh, forms of mental illness. And it is really for people. I think everybody would benefit from a therapist. I'm sure you would agree is to have somebody there to validate, bounce things off of, to help um, build confidence. There's a lot of day-to-day -day things I think therapy can really help with, along with the more significant mental health issues that a lot of people do uh, present with. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like being proactive in your mental health is so important. Like you shouldn't have to wait until you actually need, you know, mm -hmm. the services for you to go for it. And I always say like, 
you don't have to be someone who's dealing with a lot to speak to a therapist. You might not need to be go as consistently, but Mm -hmm. it's so nice to like build up tools and to understand like good habits and practices that um, help support you so that you're like on the right track and that you don't fall into unhealthy habits, which I actually want to get into a little bit later because there was um, a conversation I had with someone in regards to that. But while we're still on the topic of like taboo and um, kind of normalizing the practice of therapy and like seeking therapy. Um, generational trauma is something I think a lot of people either recognize within their own families or are starting to recognize. And um, having parents who have dealt with their own traumas, whether it's through war or you know the fact that they had to immigrate to the West and those types of experiences, especially when it comes to the women in our families who probably had a completely different life than we did. Um, how do we help support, you know, the elders, like our parents who, whose trauma sometimes do get to us or get passed down to us, especially when they're not as open, one, they're not as open to receiving therapy, but two, probably don't have the resources to get therapy the same way that we do, like language barrier, is probably the the biggest one that I can think of. But do you have anything that you can share with us about generational trauma and ways we can support elders who probably should have sought some help, but maybe can't? I mean, I always tell um, a lot of people, um, especially my clients, is that, I mean, we're not meant to be our parents or our family's therapists. And I think a lot of times we take the hat on as, you know, children of immigrants or immigrants ourselves is, need to fix everything you know it's our job to to do this I think that's a lot of pressure and I think it also can lead to a lot more issues for yourself and I don't necessarily know that that's helpful to your parents either if you're trying to um, parent them essentially right for lack of better word Um, so I do think step one is realizing that there's only so much you can do and also what I find happens with intergenerational trauma is the narrative, it's the way we speak to ourselves, right? It's the voice we're using and the way we speak in ways that we would never speak to anybody else. And it actually is one of my tips for if anyone, I, I know therapy is very difficult to, there's a lot of barriers, let's put it that way, is, is t- taking notice of how you speak to yourself. And I find that in our communities, given the intergenerational traumas that we have, the way that our parents knew how to parent, and if we want to change that cycle is, how are we speaking to ourselves? Are we continuing that narrative that's there that often is passed down? Is that, you know, is there something wrong with me? You know, everything's bad. You know, it's me. It's not about your parents or whoever it is in your extended family. It's you that's wrong or needs to be fixed. Um, I find often when people get older as adults, we realize it isn't us that was always the issue. And then we want to try to fix them. I don't think it's a great way to build a relationship is trying to fix somebody else. I'm a big believer. And obviously, if that person's able to get help professionally, great. If not, there's a lot you can do by just having more appropriate boundaries, assertiveness with parents that is done in a way that's still in line with our cultural uh, values. Because I think it is important. We're not communities that are out to really cut out our family if we can avoid that, to be honest with you, right? Obviously, there might be some circumstances where you do need to cut out people. But for the most part, I know in our communities, that is not going to be what we want to do as our first, second, or third choice. It's usually quite down the list. But I don't think that means that we just have to let everything continue, that we have to allow them 
to um, continue to say certain things, um, you know, make us not feel very good. And I think it is, is how can you speak up in a way that's still true to your values? And hopefully in some ways also teaching them how to have boundaries, because I think that often is the case is our parents' generation, the older generation, um, they weren't taught a lot of these things. Mm. We've learned them a lot because, you know, in terms of the way that society has shifted, they have not been able to do that. So I think what we can do is sometimes um, really uh, demonstrate through modeling. What, what is healthy ways to act and behave and speak up? And I think also for us to realize is when is it an appropriate time to speak up and when should we just kind of be quiet? It may not be helpful to yourself or to your parent to speak up. Um, so I don't know if that answers it, but I would just say is realizing you can't take on that burden of how do we, you know, help fix them. Um, I think that's a lot of stress on the relationship. Um, but I do think there's some things you can do by modeling good behaviors, by speaking up in an appropriate way, um, encouraging them to get help if they're open to it. If not, I think there's a lot of good things out there that people can do that can help their mental health. That's free, whether it be, you know, social um, connections, getting out and working out, taking walks, being in nature to try to help them in other ways that is accessible to them and that might be more in line with their um, cultural norms. Yeah, I think there's so much on, on that topic to unpack because I think in a lot of cultures, because we are more of like a community-based culture, we're not very individualistic, which is, I think, what we grew up with in the West, but we don't really, you know, experience at home. And so this idea that like we really dedicate so much of ourselves and our time into helping people in our lives, which I think is a beautiful thing. Um, but it's about creating boundaries, at least what I've learned and still learning. And I don't, I mean, you know, what you talk about, I just want to let people know, like, this is a long, sometimes a long-term process. It's not something that comes um, overnight, but creating boundaries, understanding to what extent can you help and to what extent, you know, are, do people have to help themselves? I think for me, a lot of things is like, if I learn something that is beneficial, I do like to share it. So that could be with my mom if I'm going out for a walk because I realized going out in nature and getting out of my space, especially during this pandemic, a lot of people have been stuck at home and like, you know, in their rooms and they're working from home and learning that something as simple as like going outside can help boost your mood and and help so much with, you know, um, what you're dealing with and kind of clear your mind. And so maybe taking, you know, the person that you care about with you or telling them about it and having them, you know, I guess, adapt some of those practices. Um, I think where it becomes really difficult and where I've seen a lot of the, the questions and comments I received is people talking about, you know, their Islamic duties to their parents mm -hmm. and the cultural expectations and then setting boundaries. And I think people are having a really hard time figuring out at what point am I setting a boundary that's healthy for me? And at what point am I you know, neglecting my parents' needs in, in terms of like, I don't want to be disrespectful, but like, I also don't want to put myself in, in, in a position where they're trauma dumping, they're, you know, verbally abusing me, maybe physically abusing me, or just even, um, you know, giving them negative vibes, I guess, like, you know, the parents can sometimes be a little bit harsh on their kids. And so do you have anything that you can speak to that that could help people who are struggling a little bit with that um, on how to balance that, especially when it comes from, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you address things from a religious perspective, but that maybe you've heard or anything from your experience in the line of work that you do. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to add that disclaimer of I am not, you know, an expert when it comes to matters of the religion. Mm-hmm. But what I often will say to, to my clients is, to my knowledge, there's no nothing that's written anywhere that says you you are required to speak to your parents daily for an hour and listen to them as they berate you. To my understanding, that's not in our religion. Um, to my understanding, it is is you, you do things that you maintain bonds, which you can do without with and you can do that with adding boundaries still, right? You can still add in boundaries, but things like boundaries, like you said, it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. I hear this often as this is what it is. I want it to be this. I'm like, if you want to maintain relationships, it's going to take some time. So to be patient with the process, I think it's important to realize is that yes, there are rights that we have to our parents, but there's also rights and responsibilities that parents have towards their children. And, and rights you have towards yourself as well. Yeah. I was just gonna say, I'm like, and to my understanding, the religion is it's your life above all, like you have to be able to preserve your life. And as much as it might seem like that seems very heavy, I'm like, no, it's life and death for a lot of people in terms of what they have to hear at home, what they go through, what the toxicity, what the the verbal, physical, what have you abuse that happens is these are very serious things that it's not, I, I believe a God is merciful. I do not think that this is what was indicated when it was like, you know, the respect that you have and the responsibility towards your parents. I don't believe that our religion is black and white that way. I think that it is that we often hear lectures and speeches about uh, when it comes to parents, but they're done for the wide ranging audience. It's meant for people, you know, parents are also meant to be loving and caring and to not do a lot of these things that a lot of our community is experiencing in terms of that, um, the, the toxic behaviors. So I do think it's something that it's not something that should be part of our faith is that we need to just, you just put up with it. I hear that a lot from clients when it comes to marriages. It's like, you just, you know, you just have to be patient. Our religion, you know, that's what we're about. It's like, no, it, it's actually not it, part of it. Uh, I mean, sorry, it is part of it, but that's not the only uh, tool you have at your disposal, right? It, it is not that you necessarily cut off people immediately, but I think you work on it. And I think a lot of people are scared to even, they worry about them working on their their relationships in case this is something that, impacts their ability to get to heaven. I do recommend that if people have more specific questions when it comes to matters of the religion is similar to a therapist, ask around who's a, who, who's a good um, faith leader, who's a good imam or a chaplain who might have more nuanced knowledge around this. I actually find chaplains are a good source because they have been trained in the ability of not just for the masses, but also around the mental health aspect, right? Their training and education in uh, the local universities and things helps them gear them towards that knowledge. And I often find I will recommend that to my clients as, you know, don't take it from me about what your Islamic responsibilities might be towards these areas. You know, maybe you should reach out um, and have a, a bit of a chat with somebody who is more experienced in this to find out what are your actual obligations when it comes to the deen and have that nuanced conversation because there's no point of almost putting up boundaries if you're going to be riddled with guilt the entire time and you're stuck with that. Um, so I think it is, it's a slow process step by step, but I don't think that our religion is one of you just have to you suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. When you said riddled with guilt, I was thinking about how, and a lot of conversations I have with people about building boundaries, it's like, that's just one step. You have to build boundaries and then you have to get rid of the guilt that comes with it. And it's not until you're able to do both. I think 
when you start to find, you know, um, I guess the relief that you're looking for or the, the peace that you're looking for, because you can build boundaries, but then if the guilt almost consumes, consumes you much, just as much, you might be more tempted than to remove those boundaries because then you feel like this doesn't feel right. I need to like make myself accessible again or put myself in those situations. I would think that like anyone that doesn't address some issues, and I know it's very difficult, especially when it comes with family. I think a lot of people, most of their issues come because of family, family dynamics, family traumas and issues is if you don't address it, it builds up over time and eventually it's going to blow over. And that's where it can, that's where you see kind of like, I think the worst reactions to it and resentment and, and stuff like that. So I wish that we had a healthier way and like better practices within our communities and within our families to, to have like those healthy conversations. Like I think, for example, me and my younger sister, we're both pretty educated when it comes to mental health because of our own experiences and we're both very open about being in therapy to where if we have a problem like we can talk about it discuss it and like in a healthy manner like overcome it but if again if you're in a situation where you might have that experience or that wants to do that but your parents don't or your significant other doesn't it just makes it very one-sided and very difficult what kind of advice would you give to parents who either have kids well, I guess I'll ask it this way what kind of advice would you give to parents whose kids are seeking therapy but they're reluctant because they're like I don't know what this means like my 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 child is not crazy right because they use that term to think something is wrong with them all because of like their lack of experience or knowledge on what it is look Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I always say, I mean, as a parent, I think most parents, almost all parents want what's best for their children. And I know as parents, we think it should be us that is the means of taking care of our children, fixing them. Uh, but I, I think it's fair to say that we are out of our realm when it comes to a lot of topics, when it comes to our children. And I would say thinking of it similar to what you would do if your child had some other physical ailment, diabetes, whatever it may be, is that you would get help with somebody who has gone to school, um, has significant amount of training, supervision around this is it's worthwhile trying out. I will say one of the, when it comes to therapy, there's not a lot of risks when it comes to therapy in terms of it going, it's going to make you worse. I would say there's obviously that it's, it's possible that it doesn't do anything for you, right? That there is that, but I, when it comes to what are the risks with therapy, when I do uh, that with my clients, I'm like, you might, you're going to be uncomfortable. That's the biggest risk when it comes to therapy. So I would tell parents is, is there a significant harm to see if this might help your child? 
If your child is on board, you can also get permission to speak to the therapist to get a bit of a sense of what's going on. You can ask if your child is comfortable with having a joint session with the therapist. Because I know for a lot of times we're like, especially if it's not a Muslim therapist, it's like, are they trying to, you know, take, steer them away from us? What's happening? We often jump to the worst case scenario. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it can help if you, you meet with the therapist. Um, that can go uh, a long ways. And I think uh, challenging a lot of the, the worries that you might have and also showing your child that you do have a vested interest in seeing that they're better and that you want to be there to support them. Definitely. And I think as we continue, anyone who's had a positive experience with therapy, whether as a, as a parent to openly talk about that, obviously, if you're comfortable, but I think there's such a power and sharing experiences and normalizing conversations about it because then I think that's like over time how a lot of things have changed and within our communities is because someone spoke out about it someone else tried it they also spoke out about it and then suddenly it was just like yeah everyone does this like this is normal so I think we're getting there um so one of the questions that I also got was people talking about how they've had decades of trauma or for example dealing with loss not being able to move forward and the concern about, is this something you ever actually overcome or do you learn to cope with it? So if you can help us understand how, you know, long-term trauma kind of uh, shapes itself over time. And that's actually a question I'm curious about, like, do we actually overcome it or do we learn to live with it? Yeah, I mean, similar to the first question you asked me, I think it's the definition of what healing from trauma is, is very subjective. So your version of healing might be different than my version of healing. I think when I talk to individuals at the beginning of therapy or if I'm assessing them, they'll, they'll often say they wanna be that same person again before they have the trauma. They want it, which is normal and it makes sense. They wanna be who they were. But what I do think realistically is, is that trauma will change you, but it's not always in a bad way. It might not be something I say immediately to somebody who's gone through something quite traumatic, um, but that to me is realistically what happens in the majority of people that are able to actually get some help or some clarity with their trauma is, yes, you will change. It might not all be in ways that you like, uh, but it's not always all in bad ways. I do see there's this concept of um, post-traumatic growth, it's called. And I think it's something that I found really, that the pandemic has really brought Sean a light on for me at least, because we're kind of going through a community collective trauma ongoing at this point is that many people actually see improvements in areas after something that happens that's traumatic and I think it's something that's not talked about a lot to be honest um, is yes there might be long-lasting symptoms uh, but there's also some good that happens so things like finding strength in themselves so building that you know what I am vulnerable but I'm stronger than I thought I lived through all of this so the people that have these cumulative traumas, often I'm, I'm always floored by it. Like, wow, you are like, you've got through that. Like, that's huge. The, the amount of strength that is to, to, to have that happen is phenomenal. Though I will tell you those individuals don't think that they're strong, but it can happen after some time and doing some work is, you know what? Yeah, it was really hard. Didn't enjoy it, but I'm stronger than I thought I was. I can handle a lot. So realization of that. Uh, forming deeper relationships. I don't know um, if you've noticed this, but I do find that the harder things are, like I feel like even with the pandemic is for a lot of people after something traumatic happens, trust is shattered. 
but for other people, it really pushes them to find deeper relationships and uh, connections. So I know for me personally, with the pandemic, it's really highlighted the fact that, you know, those deeper connections I want with friends. There's a lot of people I just didn't see and I didn't keep up with. And that was okay because I found that I was able to find deeper relationships as a result of going through something that was pretty traumatic for, for me and for a lot of people. Um, also just kind of gaining gratitude, which I know there's a lot of talk about gratitude, uh, but I will say that, you know, studies back up that like people who are, have practices of gratitude or, or, or are more grateful are happier. And I think at the end of the day, that's what a lot of what people want is after they've gone through trauma is to feel some sort of peace and happiness again. And that can often be from grounding themselves and realizing that there's a why to live for. There is a why to live for, right? So for kind of reminding themselves of that. And again, especially if in terms of our faith is discovering there's more meaning in life. So after a trauma, a lot of people discover that is, you know what? There's more to life than just, you know, the, the nine to five hustle, you know, taking, you know, going to school, all these type of things. There is more that's there. And for many people, they will find that religion or spirituality is strengthened as a result of trauma. Yeah. Um, so again, in terms of does it ever go away? I think for there are many people that are able to put a lot of it um, as something they've put behind them. It's something that they know happened. I also see a lot of people that will say, it's almost like they want a magic wand. Like, I don't want to, you know, just, I want to shove it back down. It's like, nope, it's going to keep coming back up if you do that. Uh, but those individuals that know something really bad happened to me or bad things have happened to me, but I, I just need to be more mindful of how certain things go. So I need to be more mindful of, I'm more uh, susceptible to react to sleep changes, or, you know, I need to make sure I eat at a regular time. I need, you know, they might need to be more on the ball with certain things, but I honestly think that majority of the people that I see have seen such growth as a result um, that for the people that ask those questions, I think keeping that in mind is um, there may be some hardships, but again, there hopefully is some ease as well that comes with it. I think that can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. It's like you actually have to put in the work and there's no band-aid to put on it. I always think of it as like going to the gym, you know, in order to see results, you have to actually put in the work. You have to do, you know, you have to be committed and you also have to be consistent because it's not going to be something that's overnight. And so the same way that if we want to see our health or our physique change, you have to put in the work. It's the same thing with mental health that if you want to see the work, you have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, you know, you might be mentally exhausted and sore, you know, from the workout, but you have to do it in order to see the change. And I think that's something like for me, I always just thought like, is there, you know, like a quick fix, like something and you learn no. And the longer that you kind of put that off, the harder it's going to become. So there's no better time than I guess, like today to start. Um, also, I wanted to say that when I was doing a lot of like my own like kind of spiritual research and just seeking out like more knowledge, I found that so much of our Dean highlights like mental health and um, whether it's in, you know, the Quran or the prophet Sira, like in his story and like the experiences he had with depression. And, um, you know, you talk about gratitude and like there's an eye in the Quran where the uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that if you are more grateful, then like I will increase you. And so I think that, you know, I'm obviously not a scholar. We both are not fit to uh, really talk 
in detail about this, but I really encourage people to find, there's really great lectures online on YouTube, on stuff like that. And I think it just helps, especially for those people who are still maybe a little bit hesitant about mental health and it comforts them to know that there's like religious backing to some of these practices. I, I think this is kind of a simple question, but I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. Maybe it doesn't have to do with trauma, but how does someone recognize whether they're leaning towards depression or they're just sad? Um, I always tell people a good rule of thumb, whether it be for if they're sad, anxious, there's trauma symptoms, is it's time to do something about it if it's getting in the way of you living your life. So for people who are just kind of sad, it probably isn't impacting them that significantly if it's just a one-off. So depression in terms of clinically how it looks like, it's, it's an all day, every day type of thing. So there is this, when it comes to formally diagnosing things, it's all day, every day, continuously. You know, there's a loss of interest. There's a lot of things, but it is that again, almost all day, every day. And for people who are just, no, I felt kind of sad. I'm like, okay, is it getting in the way of you, you know, getting to work on time, engaging with friends and family, um, your hobbies? It's like, no, sometimes I might, you know, um, say no to a, a social outing, but for the most part, no, I would say that that's not likely to be depression, if it's not getting in the way of your functioning. Because that really is to me the hallmark sign of do you do you think that maybe you should talk to somebody is is it getting in the way because at the end of the day I think the most important thing is is your quality of life are you able to live life the way you want to and if you're not I think it's worthwhile to check in you know with a with a family doctor you know and if it's not accessible like calling a helpline to kind of have somebody walk you through a lot of the questions to see what can you do and what resources are available in your local community because I do think a lot of these um toll-free helplines are very helpful for that because they can know where you are and they can pull out databases and help you. Um, so I do think if you're not sure, ask. But that to me is a good rule of thumb is if it's getting in the way of you functioning. And is that also good practice for making sure that what you're going through doesn't eventually lead to like self-harm or suicide ideation, you know, kind of like the more extreme end to where, I mean, does it build up over time? You know, you start off as being maybe depressed and then, you know, I don't know, it just kind of grows from there or how does that work? I mean, there usually are, I guess, what we call warning signs, red flags, right? In terms of things aren't going so well. And the problem is most people aren't very good at realizing them in the moment. They're, I mean, I will sometimes spend time with people and try to reflect back. So if this were to happen again, they can recognize what their red flags are. So uh, for example, a lot of people would say is, you know what, my sleep is off it's a warning sign that I'm not doing very well, or I'm starting to not go to the gym or I'm not doing my skincare routine. These type of things, these are warning signs um, that, you know what, maybe I should, you know, reach back out to my therapist, or maybe I should check in with uh, the school uh, guidance counselor, whatever it might be that you have access to is these are things that you might want to do something about, or it might be time for you to implement skills that have previously helped you. So I know often if I haven't seen somebody for a while and they'll come back to me six months later, I'm like, okay, so there are warning signs. What did you do? And I'll be like, I didn't do anything about them. I'm like, okay, so let's start implementing the skills to help you. Let's, you know, set up an outing with your friend that you feel comfortable with, you know, sign up for a class at the gym because you're going to be accountable and that will help with your mood. 
um, I'm going to start doing uh, my breathing exercises again that I used to do regularly. I'm going to be on top of my prayers again, because that's always helpful for me. So to make sure that if you know that you have skills that are helpful to you, like you mentioned, walking in nature, it's one of mine as well. I know I'm not doing well if I'm like, yeah, that's true. I haven't taken a walk in a few days. I should really do that. I need to implement my skill that can help. If it doesn't help, then I do think you should reach out. The individual should reach out um, to get help. And I think I'm forgetting the second part of your question. No, I think you answered it. It was just about like, if there's... Oh, you know, for self-harm. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So self-harm. So not all um, hurting yourself is always hurting yourself is not always with the same intention of wanting to kill yourself. There is a difference. So there are individuals that will harm themselves um, for a variety of reasons, but not necessarily to kill themselves. It's still something that's of concern and is on that path that can lead to, I want to hurt myself. And I would say if you are doing any type of self-harm behaviors, so even without the intention of wanting to kill yourself, it is something you should reach out to somebody to get help around because it's a slippery slope. It's something that is quite serious and not something that you want, I'm sure, for yourself in terms of, of what you see your life looking like. So I would say, please do reach out for help if that's the case. That to me is definitely a warning sign that you do need to reach out for, even if it's not that you want to kill yourself. Is, is self-harm just physical or is it physical and mental like self-sabotage or isolation because I I would think of those as being like you're harming yourself but when we're talking about like the technical term is it just physical yeah. I was just gonna say I think technically I, I wouldn't say self-isolation would be a technical self-harm but self-harm isn't always you know it can be things like it could, it could be either more subtle things, but yes, generally it's actually more physical based. Um, I think when it comes to what we use in day-to-day conversation, I think often people will say those type of other behaviors are self-harming behaviors. Okay. That's really good to know. Thank you for clarifying. I'm going to jump into, I have uh, two kind of more specific questions that someone asked. So I'm going to see if you can give some insight. Again, I know that without having spoken with the person and understanding the full context of what's happening, it's really hard to give advice. But if there's anything that you could speak to, um, someone said, my mother is a very difficult, has a very difficult personality, borderline narcissist, and I'm constantly walking on eggshells to keep her happy. How do we balance boundaries and self-care with Islamic principles of lowering our wings and humility to our parents? It's so hard. So I think we, we kind of talked about this throughout the the recording so far but do you have anything that you can speak to specifically to this person I, I do think taking um, a look at uh, what's going on and if there's a pattern to the behaviors um, because my assumption here is is that for whatever reason your mom is not either open to or able to get uh, more help or that you're unable to get um, joint counseling which if you can, I would recommend, because I think it's always great to have a mediator if possible, because I think often, particularly with the mother-child dynamic, is that we often misinterpret things there, or we don't listen as much as we should. So having a third person there is always helpful, I think, to kind of make sure both sides are being heard. So if you're able to do that, that would be what I would recommend as the first step. Otherwise, I would say is looking to see if there's any patterns with what's going on in terms of the dynamic between you and your mom. Is it always the case? Or is it only when there's certain things that are happening, whether it be she just worked a really long shift and she's exhausted, and it seems like that's when we're more likely to butt heads, then I would say based on that knowledge is what am I going to do knowing that knowledge? I'm going to try to minimize interacting with her after she comes off of a long shift. 
that's not, I'm going to ignore her. I'm going to do this is maybe that's when you decide to, you know, I'm going to go out, grab a coffee with a friend. I know this is not a good day, or I'm going to hang out in my room more. I'm not going to watch TV in the main area just because I know we're more likely to. So I think it is, is coming up with some skills that you can implement if it's not constantly, because I think it's in your best interest to not, um, continuously be in those kind of situations with your mom. I think if you're able to, I would talk about learning skills for communication with how do I have these conversations with my mom about, I love you, mom, I don't want this to keep happening. And how do we work towards doing something about this? That to me is a skill that can be harder for people if the other side's not open to it. And I would say you might need more help with that. But I think starting with some basics of, is there any warning signs that my mom is gonna react this way? If there are, what can I do knowing those warning signs to help minimize that this happens? I think that might be a good place to start. Awesome, thank you. Uh, someone else also asked um, how to deal with like trauma that it still tends to have an effect on them today. So for example, um, this uh, woman said that she has, uh, okay, she said, my past trauma has to do with my daughter's father. Um, they're no longer together. Um, and she says, how, how do you deal with or moving past trauma when it's one call away? So the fear of hearing their voice or just a text when they're obviously co-parenting can bring back so much pain and trauma to that experience that she might have had in that previous relationship. Yeah, I mean, and that's a tough one because I often say to people, it's hard when you're still, you're forced to be around what we call triggers, things that remind you of the trauma. So in this situation, it sounds like, you know, any communication with the person that was involved in the trauma would understandably be triggering. That's something that ideally you would want to work on with somebody if you could in terms of a therapist professionally. But I would start with what I said earlier is, is what are you telling yourself when these things happen, right? Is to slow it down and to really talk back to your thoughts that are coming up, whether it be I'm unsafe right now, or, you know, it's happening again, whatever might come up when he texts you or you need to interact with him because often the thoughts or our internal dialogue isn't accurate. So being able to really question, are my thoughts actual facts currently in the moment? Am I safe right now in the moment? So being able to ground yourself in that knowledge of he's not hurt, he cannot hurt me anymore. He is not here. I'm okay. So to remind yourself in the moment that this is what's going on. This is your current reality. I do think a lot of times what happens after a trauma is that many people tamp down on their initial emotions. So often something traumatic happens, there are natural emotions that come. So whether it be sadness, tears, depending on the trauma, anger, frustration, uh, but we've often been taught that, you know, it's uncomfortable to express our emotions. So we should push it away, tamp it down and hope it goes away. Uh, but what we know is one of the reasons that PTSD develops is, is that it's a disruption of the natural healing process. Something's kind of interfering with your ability to naturally heal after a trauma because it is very normal for everyone to have some level of trauma symptoms after a trauma but not everyone goes on to develop PTSD one of the things that they say is is that the natural healing process can be disrupted so for example I find there's a lot of people that actually never let out those those tears the anger whether it be well I have my kid I can't do that now, or I have to work, I have to do this, and they keep pushing it. 
I would recommend if this person hasn't done so yet, and if they feel like they're still pushing down their emotions is in a time that you have available, like, I mean, you know, maybe it is when your child is with, you know, their father is having a time to let out those natural emotions. So having a good cry, um, if it's anger is, I was like, scream in your pillow, punch a punching bag. It's very normal and cathartic to be able to release those emotions. Will it mean the trauma will go away? No, but it really does do something about allowing some of those natural emotions to be released from your body and to have a little bit of relief that comes with it. And I often find that that's something that's often overlooked by a lot of people who've gone through trauma is, did you actually let it out? Have you had a chance? And a lot of times after trauma, you're so caught up with but I need to deal with, depending on the nature of the trauma, you know, the, the police or the hospital staff or my own injuries or what, depending on the nature of the trauma, there was a lot of things that kept them busy. Um, and I would say it's obviously better if it's happened soon after, but it doesn't mean you can't do it weeks, months, years later is allow those natural emotions to come out, but do it when you feel safe and comfortable. It doesn't have to be with an audience of your children, your, your spouse, your partner, your parents around. You can try to do it when people are out or you have time by yourself in your room or um, while you're on a walk. And maybe for like example, in the situation, it could have been like the actual divorce process is like what you had to focus on after. And so you weren't able to really process what you had experienced. And so um, would you say that if, if you, if you're in a situation, I always feel like, you know, you should evaluate, um, you know, are you having rational fears? Are you having irrational fears? So is the text message of like someone saying, hey, I'm outside triggering you? Because then I feel like I'm sure you would suggest like that person needs to probably go through therapy and like seek a little bit more help to overcome some of those. Or if it if that person is actually, you know, harassing, you know, their ex mm -hmm. or something, then it's more like, I don't know, creating boundaries or yes. maybe it's more of like a legal thing. But I guess, evaluating the situation and figuring out like what's the right approach to it. Yes. And I think part of that is, is, is what I'm feeling based, is, is it a fact, is it based in, is there evidence to support what I'm feeling right now? If it is, yes, he has been harassing me. He's been texting me. And now he's saying he's outside. I would say mm, that's not in your head. This is something that you should work on addressing. This is not just a trigger. If it's a, no, we haven't had any issues in a few years. But yes, he, this was the case before. And I know that it's just a reminder of what happened. I would say that you do treat them differently, right? One of them is, is that you are going to be working on more addressing and getting more accustomed to having to, unfortunately, be interacting with somebody that harmed you, but is no longer harming you. If they are still harming you, that's a different situation. And that, like you said, is whether that be a boundaries or reaching out to you know, ensure that the rules are being followed when it comes to the separation or the divorce proceedings that kind of thing. Awesome. Thank you. Um, very helpful. Um, the next thing, and I think this is one of the last things, unless there's anything else that you'd like to cover, but I'm going to list a few things that I feel like a lot of people struggle with, and it might not be like as serious as like some of the traumas and like experiences people deal with, but they're basically like bad habits or practices that I think um, can really leave people in bad situations where then they start having more, um, problems with like their self-esteem, their productivity. And so things like being codependent, um, coping with things that are going on in their day-to-day -day life that they're not happy with through like excessive shopping or being on social media for too long, procrastinating, um, you know, talking down to themselves, stuff like that. Um, 
how do we build healthy habits or how would you recommend building healthy habits and recognizing those bad practices so that we can change them for just a better quality of life and like our day-to-day living? I think that's a good one. I mean, I think it's almost twofold is how do we bring up healthy habits and how do we stop doing some of these unhealthy habits? Mm -hmm. I, I think step one is just realizing that these are unhealthy habits. I actually think one of the biggest steps is, is just awareness of this is not good that I'm just scrolling on social media and it's been hour three at this point, or I'm binging on whatever episode of the show I'm watching and it's been five episodes. This is mm-hmm. not, this is not enjoyable anymore. I know that I'm just numbing is awareness of it. And also if you can start asking yourself, why am I doing this? Is it, I don't, I don't like being alone. Is it, you know, I'm feeling anxious. It, like, why are you doing some of these habits, whether it be, you know, like you said, online shopping or scrolling on um, social media, other, you know, maybe it's binge eating food is why or do you, can you stop or think back to when you just right before you started doing that behavior is what, what was I feeling? What was going on? Cause that can help figure out, well, what can I replace that behavior with? So it's going to be hard because you're finding some amount of relief with whatever it is this unhealthy behavior is because no one actually is saying that these unhealthy behaviors always feel bad. There's a point where, you know, um, binge watching a show, um, using substances that it's, there's a bit of relief that happens there. That's why people keep doing it. There is some positive uh, feeling that you get, but it doesn't last as I'm sure most people would agree is I know when I'm doing unhealthy coping behaviors where I'm like, it doesn't feel good. I feel kind of icky about it. It's not doing what I want it to do. Uh, but you need to know why you're doing it. And then what could be realistically something I can do instead? You might not be 100% accurate with replacing it always. But if you can at least start doing healthier behaviors in addition to the un- to the unhealthy. So yes, you might end up um, binge eating a lot more often. That's not great, but can we start implementing other healthy behaviors so that you can start building up your habit of, I also go for daily walks, or I also like to, um, do some meditation for five minutes every day. If you can start building up healthy habits, you're more likely to be able to, um, stop doing the unhealthy ones. Like similar to your example of the gym, when people start going to the gym, they often start eating healthier. It's just one of those things. It's like, well, if I'm doing this, mm-hmm. shouldn't I do this? It's more. Well, if I'm going for daily walks, should I really? Do I want to be binge eating right now? Do I feel good when I do it? Um, and most people would say, with unhealthy behaviors, they don't feel good when they do it. And even with a gym, as someone who's not a big fan of it, is be it does feel better, doesn't it? Though, like at the end of the day, you can say, I feel accomplished. I might not have loved the the act of it, but I there is a positive feeling that comes as a result. And my hope would be is if you're able to start implementing more healthy coping strategies, and there's honestly, you could do a Google search and you would see a list upon list of things that you could try out of healthy coping strategies. If taking a walk in nature is not your thing, don't worry. There's a lot of other things that you can try out and see what works for you and be open to making changes. If it doesn't work anymore, you try something else. Uh, But to try to just to be curious and learn more about why am I doing unhealthy behaviors? And uh, what can I do about it? Because not everything that, you know, works for some is going to work for all, right? You know, um, some people, nature is like a big factor in their ability mm-hmm. to like find peace and, and calmness. And some people it's like not, you know, nope. the thing yeah. that they look for. Yeah. Exactly. But what do you think about, 
you know, I've been thinking about this a lot more recently, but like toxic positivity. I don't know if you've heard of this term, but like, you know, especially with social media and you get like all these people who are just painting the perfect picture and like go out and, you know, have your coffee and cook that healthy meal. And like, it's just overwhelming. And I think that um, especially for people who like try those things and are like, it's not working out. They think it's a them problem. Like something's wrong with me, but really it's like, it's okay if you go out for a walk and it helps, but you realize it's not your favorite thing to do in the world. Like the gym might not be your favorite thing in the world, but it's okay to, at least you get yourself there. You don't have to necessarily enjoy it, but you know that you're doing something. You're there for the results, right? Like not necessarily the enjoyment. Some people enjoy it. Some people are there just to get the job done. So is there anything that you have or that you can, you know, share yeah. about toxic positivity? I honestly think it's, 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 a, it's such an interesting thing that, you know, as much as we're learning more about mental health, I think it goes back to is there was that line where even when I mentioned gratitude, I know there's a lot of people that are like, oh, can people stop? you know, shoving it down my throat. Like it's, there's only so much. It's, it's, and it's never something I ever bring up actually in initial, even a few sessions, because I know it's actually, it's dismissive of people's pain when the toxic positivity is dismissive of what people are going through. And it can, it's counterproductive to be honest with you. So for those that do do it, I mean, it doesn't come across that way for everyone, but intrinsically what that is, is people want to be heard. If it's a no, it's been great. The pandemic is, you know, this is what I'm doing now. And it's like, yeah, but not for, for me. It makes me feel like something's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. If I'm sharing with you that I'm just not, I'm in a rut. And if you share back, just go out for walks, cook healthy meals. It's, it's making me feel like something's wrong with me. I'm less likely to do it, to be honest with you, because I think that there's something wrong with me. And I feel like I wasn't heard. Um, so it is this line that I think, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm sure we've all done it. We've kind of had that toxic positivity that we've come across to somebody else. And I'm sure I will do it again, but I think it is important is just being aware that the way you speak can really impact other people. And to be mindful of if someone is sharing with you some of their struggles or stressors that they have is often what people want, they just want to be heard. They don't need you to fix them. Um, that's not what in day-to-day, you know, interactions that people are looking for is to be fixed. They're often looking to be heard and not to be told, you know, you just need to, you know, run, you know, five Ks a day. You need to, you know, have a fresh smoothie every day. That's not often what people are looking for. They just want to, you know, hear, yeah, it's, it's been really hard. I can, you know, is there anything I can do? Um, I'm here if you need me to, you know, for a phone call or a quick coffee, whatever you need. That goes a long ways more than, you need to start doing daily gratitudes and take a walk in nature. Um, I don't think it comes across uh, very well or, and it's not well received, I think for most. Yeah. I think I saw a lot of that at the start of the pandemic with the way that I think a lot of people are trying to do a positive spin on, you know, this kind of collective experience that we were having, but not realizing that some people were losing their jobs and having a lot more harder, you know, some people had to move back in with family and um their situation just got a lot worse and other people it was like oh I got to just work from home and it was almost like a a blessing in disguise in some way because their day-to-day life was just kind of improved by being at home and I get to take my dog on a walk and like make my smoothie and then you just realize like not everyone has that experience and so I noticed that at the start of the pandemic um I usually like to end uh my podcast or I've recently started doing this um asking like a few questions that are a little bit personal just to give us insight. I mean, not that personal, but um, (laughs) 
it's just a, a like a fun Q&A thing that I like to do at the end. So like one of the first ones is like, what is like your favorite or best advice that you've ever been given? One of my go-tos, at least right now, and one of my favorite things is, you know, you you have to be uncomfortable, you know, to grow, you have to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I know is very relevant to the people I see, but also for myself is, have I ever seen anything positive really come without any, um, without any discomfort? Because humans, none of, we don't like to be uncomfortable. Um, I probably more than the average person, I can be a little avoidant is this is a good reminder when I did hear that the first time is, you know, in order to grow, you have to be uncomfortable. That's very true. And something I struggle with, because I do not like to be, I like to build, I'm very much, I like control. And I like, you know, knowing what's going to happen. I don't, that's where my anxiety stems from a lot of the times. And so that's a very hard thing that I've been having to do. So it's a good one. Um, what about a favorite quote? I guess that could have been also your favorite advice, but is there a quote or something that you really enjoy? Uh, when we numb the dark, we numb the light by Brene Brown, which mm. I thought was great. And I think it really, I mean, for me, uh, as well as, you know, to, to others is it's really important is that we think when it goes back to emotions, that there's good emotion, then there's bad emotions. And we just want to have the good. It's like, well, if you, if you tamp down on the bad stuff, you're not going to get the good stuff. And I find that happens so much with my clients that, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't feel it much, but I'm like, you're also not feeling the happy stuff. I'm, I get that you don't want to feel the negative, mm-hmm. but without that, that's a well-rounded person, someone who can feel different emotions and realizing the anger, sadness, you know, disgust, all these things are natural. Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. It's the, the wrong thing happens is when you express it inappropriately. So obviously anger, we know that if you express it, there's a socially appropriate ways and legal ways to express it. And there's bad ways to do it. Right. So it's not the emotion itself. That's a problem. It serves a purpose. Um, but when we numb them or uh, we don't allow them to shine, we're not going to get the light either. I mean, I love that. That's very powerful. Uh, favorite book. Do you have one? I don't know that I do. Um, no, I, I don't know that I, I know that. Cause I actually, I find that I'm, I'm a reader that reads like I read a vast type of books anything basically I'm not very particular so I don't know I, I read all different genres so I don't know that I have a favorite book you like all books I pretty I would say almost all like I I will read stuff from my from my children from their books and I'll be like okay you know read this teen or tween book to reading you know self-help related books to you know suspenseful ones or all of it I, I I'm, not, I'm so it's hard for me to pin down anything I'd be I mean that's that. I mean that's valid uh, I think this next question is really, uh, I mean, I, I get to pick your brain on something that you like to do to practice self-care, self-love. Like what is your favorite way to practice self-care or is there like a specific item that you like to use for your self-care practice? Um, so those that may follow me on my Instagram, they'll see that similar to you, I do a lot of walks now. Um, in nature, that has become my um, go-to self-care practice because of the pandemic, to be honest, my normal go-to would have been, if you had asked me three years ago, would have been um, getting together with uh, a friend and going out and being able to, you know, share, laugh, not necessarily talk about my stressors, but just being able to, to, um, to do something for me. 
as a result of the pandemic, I wasn't really able to do that. So I really got into being able to take walks. And I use that as my mindfulness practice, meaning it helps me focus on um, what's going on around me. I don't listen to um, I don't listen to any music. I don't listen to podcasts generally when I'm taking a walk. I do my best to just actually walk and I'm usually doing it by myself and really just focus on the sights and the sounds and the feel of you know my feet on the ground to really help ground me and to help me realize that there's more to what's going on than just my worries and my concerns and I find taking walks in nature and to be honest with you well here in Ontario it's colder I actually find when it's a bit colder maybe not extreme that it actually is a better way for me to ground myself. I find that it really, there's something with, and we can get into it, but with cold that really can help you reset your system. Um, so I do find for me that my best go-to, easily accessible, free, I can do it for five minutes and it's still helpful, uh, would be taking walks outside. Yeah, and definitely setting that time for yourself, especially if you are a mother and like a working woman and your probably schedule is booked to make sure that you have those times for yourself. When you talked about the cold, I had just read recently something about like if you're facing uh, like having a panic attack or like anxiety that you can't get rid of, like submerge your face in like ice water, that that helps. Yeah, so it's um, so well, any extreme emotion. So even if it's anger, anxiety, an extreme emotion, meaning it's causing you to, you know, have an increase in heart rate, that kind of thing. Uh, what you can do as a short term fix, this is not a long term solution, is is. In an ideal scenario, is you you would take a bowl of cold water and submerge your face in there, maybe maybe about 10, 15 seconds. Um, what that does, which as with a science background, it kind of makes me very excited, is it's based in you know science and uh, physiological stuff. Is that what that does is it sends a signal to your brain to slow down, to to slow down your breathing, slow down your heart rate because you're in the cold and you need to conserve your energy. So it actually will almost trick your system to, you know, I know you're panicking right now, or I know you're angry right now, but now there's a competing signal that's saying slow down. That being said, submersing your face in cold water isn't always possible or easy to do. I know when I was um, in the office and stuff, we'd often have an ice pack, for example, in the freezer that people could kind of do, they could put on there. Uh, I'll tell people that, it's this area right here between your eyes and your nose that's kind of important. So, for example, if you're at work or at school and there's paper towels, you can kind of cold paper towels and put them on your face there. It will also do the same. What I also like about this strategy is, is it reminds me a lot about, you know, the hadith about making wudu when you're angry and things is, is really that act of it is splashing cold water on your face, essentially, is that it is grounded in science. There's been studies that back it. The only thing I will say is that it's a short-term fix. It doesn't mean that you won't panic again or you won't get angry again. But often we need those little tricks in the moment to kind of get through the scenario uh, before we're able to do uh, more long-term strategies and skills. Yeah, I, I almost wish we had more time. I would love to have gotten more deeper into that because one thing I was learning is about like also regulating your nervous system and understanding, like, again, I'm, I've only touched the surface level of this stuff with my therapist, um, understanding like what happens to your nervous system when you are reacting, having anxiety, or you faced, you know, like you had a traumatic experience and um, like how to regulate it and the science behind it. Cause I think a lot of times people think therapy is just talking and it's just like, 
finding ways to like take your mind off of things, but there's like the actual physical aspect of it and like understanding um, how to address some of those things. And so I, I think that that's like such a great thing to maybe in the future talk about. I mean, I'd love to have you again, because I think that this conversation can extend. And there was a lot of questions that I unfortunately didn't get asked because of time. And I tried to compress some of them into each other. But thank you so much for taking the time. And um, like I said, I really hope that, you know, in the future, if you're open to it, to just coming back again, and we can maybe dig deeper onto some of these questions. My pleasure. It was great. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Like I said, at the beginning is how we work against challenging stigmas, having these type of podcasts available to, to go to a wide range of audience and stuff and to normalize it. And I mean, I think this is the best way having casual conversations about real life experiences that people have in questions and realizing that uh, it happens to a lot of us and then there is help out there. Exactly. And I'm, I'm just trying to do my part either through my platform or like on a face-to-face basis. And I'm hoping that we see more change and more um, access and more, I think, uh, less taboo when it comes to these things for people to be to have access and be able to address some of the mental health issues that they have. And to also, I think, be proactive, like be so educated and aware of like signs and, and like be able to see them earlier on so that they're not having to reach, you know, really, you know, bad times or bad levels or extreme levels where there are you know, um, susceptible to like self-harming or having suicidal ideations. And so, um, you know, one step at a time, this is like, you know, inshallah, our little piece of contribution into the conversation. So um, yeah, I hope to hopefully have you again in the future. And um, I don't know if you have any anything else you'd like to say or plug in with your page. I'm going to have all the information like on the Instagram, um, on the like show notes, but is there anything else that you'd like to share? No, I think that's it. I mean, it was, it was a pleasure. You, you made it comfortable. I appreciate oh, I'm that. Glad. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I agree with you. The time flo- flies by. Yeah, it did. And I'm glad I was able to get you out right before three minutes. Yes, before. it worked out perfectly. Yeah. Yes, I was worried, but alhamdulillah. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.